I wanted to create something that wasn't me, that was more anonymous. And OMG Facts is the account I made. I would say the next three or four weeks, the account grew to maybe 10 to 12,000 followers by itself. So I go to bed at night, 12,000 followers. I wake up, go to school. I leave school and my text messages are saying, dude, look at your Twitter account. Look at OMG Facts. And the account has 50,000 something followers just through the day. Kim Kardashian retweeted four tweets. OMG Facts became the top hashtag for multiple months in a row without dropping off the top. It became something bigger than the account, which ended up growing the account massively. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of. It doesn't matter how badly you got beaten down. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go with your gut. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. <laughs> Adorian had dabbled in YouTube fame before, but it wasn't until he checked his phone after school to 40,000 new followers that he realized the true potential and speed of the online world. I mean, imagine in 2009, Twitter was only three years old and the hashtag was even younger. Amidst working on high school homework and filming Smosh inspired videos, Adorian had somehow stumbled on the opportunity of a lifetime. He'd be one of Twitter's first non-celebrity creators. Now, at three and a half million followers on TikTok and more than 90,000 YouTube subs, Adorian is a seasoned internet veteran and a self-proclaimed facts guy. We have seen his multi-million view videos on your feed before as he teaches followers how to escape the attacks and what came first, sharks or Saturn's rings. But it wasn't all fun edits and trivia questions. In his journey through the early internet landscape, Adorian ran into swindlers, lawsuits, and even an early case of cancel culture. Growing up as one of the first chronically online species, he started small, far away from the sophisticated algorithms of TikTok and Instagram today, in the land of role play edits. What was like the first thing that you ever made video-wise or put out to the internet? You know, a lot of people don't know this, but in 2006, I created a YouTube account so that I can upload a Kingdom Hearts music video. I was on a forum for Kingdom Hearts and I was, you know, seeing other people do this. I was like, I want to make my own. (laughs) That is the reason. When you put it out there, like, what did that feel like? I mean, it felt good. I didn't think it was going to really be seen by anybody on YouTube and it wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) I just put it on the forum, but I quickly found Smosh. They were very, very early on. And I think, you know, the most subscribed person had like 50,000 subscribers at most on YouTube. And I mean, being 13 years old, finding Smosh, these two guys that are, you know, probably 18, 19 at the time messing around, I started copying them. Mm. I just wanted to be them with my friends. And we started making videos. And this is how I really learned, you know, what online world was and how you could actually get views doing it. And so did you get views when you were first putting this stuff out? Nope. (laughs) <laughs> no, it took a long time. I probably made 100 or 200 videos with my friends that maybe got 50 views each. Wow. Um, and then all my friends started to get less and less interested, but I was getting more and more interested because I started really building a community of friends. Yeah. What was that community like? It was beautiful for me because I was a very shy kid. I, I felt like an outcast a lot in my regular school, but when I was online, Back in that time, it was not cool to be on social media. It was weird. It was the funny cat videos or, you know, Tay Zonday's Chocolate Rain, like (laughs) the weird stuff you'd find online. So 
we all just kind of related in that way. And it gave me a sense of community. And I moved around a lot as a kid. And when I moved away, I must have been 15 years old. I still had all my YouTube friends I'd started making. I was like, this is interesting that I get to keep them and I have to make new friends in school. But now it's I knew the value of having long term friendships. All of my longest time friends are from that time. So you were making these skits, like 200 videos deep. When did the content that you were making have more measurable impact? I really believe it was when I was starting to collaborate with the friends I was making who also were building audiences. It really brought fresh eyes because today on social media, you can go viral tomorrow and it's very fast. But back then, really the only way was if someone else had built an audience off of something, a lot less people were you know, getting lucky in that way. And I don't necessarily believe it's luck, but collaborating. Uh, I really think, and it also just helped the content. And it was like, Oh, these two people from the internet came together. It was so weird back then. I remember, yeah, people getting in person. It was just this mind blowing thing. Do you remember your first like meaningful collab? I had a collab channel I was a part of that had four or five of my friends at the time. And we each had a day of the week. Mm. So, you know, I was Monday and then the other person was Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And I think that really helped bring more eyeballs to me. How many subscribers did you have at this point? I probably had 40 or 50,000 subscribers. Wow. Wait, yeah. that's, that's, a, that's a lot. I think I was top 1,100 most subscribed. Wow. So what did that mean? Like in, in, in 2009, when you have 40 to 50,000 subscribers, what was your content like? What was your YouTube audience like? And what was your circle of creator friends like? At that time, YouTube was still not mainstream. So I would host YouTube gatherings. Again, being 16 years old doing this, maybe not the best thing, but uh, I was basically saying, hey, I'm going to be in this public place. Anyone come and meet me. Um, and there were adults around and different, you know, support in that way. But it would be, you know, 50, 60, 70 people would all show up. Wow. Um, sometimes I have another creator or two with me. But that was That's the huge. early. Yeah, it was. I was excited. Did it feel like you were on the road to something bigger? I think I did. I felt like since I was a really young age that I was always going towards something. And YouTube, I noticed instantly when I was looking back at Smosh and all this and all that was happening because I was having my own experiences, but I was watching the early days. I was a part of the side piece community that was happening at the same time that wasn't getting as much attention, but was definitely a part of this brand new era of, you know, they started realizing money was going to be made. What was the move towards focusing on Twitter? So I liked Twitter as a platform in 2009. This is when everyone thought Twitter was just, you know, oh, I ate, I just ate lunch and that was it. And I, I just was in my bedroom all the time. I loved the community of YouTube. I loved being on my computer uh, and I love fun facts. And I wanted to create something that wasn't me. That was more anonymous that I could put a feed of information out there that people could follow. And so what happened when you were first putting it out? So let's say the account had 2,000 followers. I would say the next three or four weeks, the account grew to maybe 10 to 12,000 followers by itself. So I go to bed at night, 12,000 followers. I wake up, go to school. I leave school and my text messages are saying, dude, look at your Twitter account. Look at OMG Facts. And the account has 50,000 something followers just through the day. Kim Kardashian retweeted four tweets. What? Like quote retweeted. This was before the retweet function was a thing. And so what did that do to the account? 
I mean, that was the beginning of it all. I remember that was the time when all of the media was saying, oh, Kim Kardashian and all the Kardashians, they're getting ten dollars to $15,000 a tweet. So this is free advertising. So you were basically get you just got like $60,000 worth of free advertising. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and thank you. Thank you, Kardashians. Uh, also, I used hashtag OMG facts after every tweet. And what happened that really blew up the account after that was hashtag OMG facts became the top hashtag for multiple months in a row without dropping off the top 10. Because not only was it representing the Twitter account, but it was like people were like, I like apples or whatever they want to say about themselves. Yeah. And then posting hashtag OMG facts. It became something bigger than the account, which wow. ended up growing the account massively. Can you tell me about maybe some controversy you ran into with OMG facts? Uh, the one controversy that I think I had on that account was I think four months into having it, the account probably had some 300,000 followers. I tweeted on MLK Day, a tweet about Martin Luther King that uh, was found to be disrespectful. What was the tweet? I honestly don't fully remember it. Do you have it up? Yeah. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. spent his last night on earth having sex with two women. Yep. <laughs> Is this true? That exact tweet is not true. It was based off of other allegations that were coming out about him. I do not believe it was the last night of his life. Oh, so it was, there was a night in his life towards that, the that end might of his have life. happened allegedly. I believe is the true fact. Okay. I, I mean, there were news media covering it, and they, you know, a couple of them were saying, "Well, it's true in this." I think you could look on Snopes and mm. find like the exact information that came out. But at that time, I definitely was. Not completely negligent, but I was I was 16 and was not really paying attention. I was excited. The account was growing. My YouTube audience was pretty decent at that time, but it, it was still such a small bubble. I had not experienced as a 16-year-old what responsibility I had yet. There was a lot of apps and different things out there I was pulling facts from. I really was not doing my due diligence. I remember that tweet going up and I went downstairs in my apartment I was living at the time to go watch a movie. And I came back maybe two or three hours later and I looked at my personal at replies and it was people that were like trying to find my address so they could like attack me and all this what? stuff because they were so mad that that tweeted on there. Yeah. Cause I think I was, I had just recently announced that I was running the account too. I think when it hit a hundred thousand followers, I said, it's me. And I remember all the tweets were saying, Oh, that's not exciting. I don't want to know who this is. Did you like take down the tweet at all? Like, were you worried? Yeah, I was extremely worried. I'm, I had no ill will for any of that yeah. to be a thing. I was really not paying attention. It's obviously something I would never do today. Um, but I didn't like to have people threaten you. That's kind of It crazy. was scary. Like as a, being a teenager and, you know, I, I don't really blame them for that. People were just talking on the internet. It's whatever. But I deleted the tweet. I actually deleted the entire account for six hours. And the I ended up bringing account. it back. Yes. Because I got a, wow. I got an email that was like, hey, you know, you still have a chance to reopen it. So once the emotions subsided, I reopened the account. But I was terrified. And I, I went on my personal account and said, I'm, I'm going to take a break because I just don't know what to do with this power. Like this power with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah. I just I was just doing what I knew. And I realized, oh, I'm impacting people yeah. more than myself. And that I do recall that period as when I started to learn what responsibility people do have when they have audiences and they their actions are reaching other people. And also, I mean, like with that increase in audience size, so does the, you know, opportunity increase as well. So like what opportunities started coming your way, maybe like 2009, 2010? I was having a bunch of people reach out to me wanting to develop 
a bunch of different things, you know, apps or websites or just kind of different business ideas. Um, and I had one name come into my email box that I recognized. His name was Emerson Sparts. Um, I knew him somewhat well, but a lot of the friends I'd made on YouTube knew him very well because he was a very famous in the Harry Potter sector. Um, he was, you know, the number one website in the Harry Potter world for fans. He met JK Rowling. So I, he had, my point is he had credibility that I said, Hey, I definitely want to work with you. Let's do it. So you have this big kind of person coming to you saying like, let's do something. What did that look like? So what happened instantly is he said, you could still post certain tweets, but we can take over the tweets to post links to the website, omgfacts.com that they made. They, I guess, were already building a fact site and they saw a good opportunity to partner with me so that we can collaborate and be able to take advantage of the, the Twitter traffic and then their ability to make that website um, and generate revenue. And time went on and I just was not getting any real transparency from him or revenue in any way. Um, I signed an agreement in the beginning with him that I didn't know anything about. I was a teenager. Um, my, you know, I had my mom sign it as well. She knew she knows nothing about social media. I'm just like, mom, I have this cool opportunity to make money. Can you sign this? Um, yeah, still underage doing that. And, uh, looking back, you know, what happened is I signed an independent contractor agreement to, work on the OMG Facts brand that I owned myself. Mm. AKA he basically was trying to frame this in no the website is the original OMG Facts and OMG Facts is our company's intellectual property. So he's trying to steal it from you. Yeah, and I I you know I don't know what he was really thinking, but it was this weird sly like yeah, this is the way we're going to do it. So they had 100% of the website revenue. Uh, they gave me 100% of the t-shirt revenue, which was less than $100 that was sold. And it turned into this whole mess that was, I was just like, hey, this is crazy. Like, you know, we need to change this. And so I ended up uh, suing it. What was it like coming to that decision to sue? It was a bit scary, but it seemed like the right thing to do because we had been talking, you know, for a while to just say, Hey, this doesn't seem to be working in the right way. And we could just never get on the same page that he just did not see it the way that I saw it. And I did not see it the way he saw it. And he could not log in one day basically is what happened. And then he's like, what's up? Yeah. He, he sent me a lot of messages that were angry. And so I took control over the account again and we went back and forth for about six months. And then we ended up settling. As all this suing stuff is going on, I feel like there's, you know, there's also some personal stuff that's happening in the background as well. Yes. So my father uh, passed away on April 11th, 2011. And then I sued Emerson two weeks later. So he was helping me like with the process, yeah. finding lawyers and everything. I was also graduating high school a month later too. There was a lot going on in life at that yeah. time. What, yep. what, what happened with your dad? We believe he just had a heart attack. He was not very healthy. You know, he was 61 and mm. um, yeah, just passed away one day. I, uh, I found him at his house. It was something that I wasn't expecting. I, you know, walk in and just, you know, he's just like in his bed face down. Yeah. I, 
had to call 911 and the ambulance came and they just instantly told me like, you know, your father has passed away. And so I had to call my mom, my sister, all these people and tell them all. How did that change your life? I instantly became the head of household, you know, emotionally, pretty much financially. Truthfully, I think that experience gave me more closure to that experience than the rest of my family. I think if I was in a position where it was, you know, hey, he's gone and you don't see him and that's it versus the experience I went through where I like, oh, it's final. So, I mean, you just had a, a crap ton happen, right? You had your your dad pass away. You just started a lawsuit um, and then you eventually reached a settlement with that lawsuit. Um, how do you think about going forward from there? I just continued forward because right after high school, in that period, those couple of months, I did end up moving to LA and that's when I was really surrounded by the community of people. A lot of them were out there at the time. Was it inspiring to be around all of them? Very. Yeah. And I actually, I, I went to Santa Monica College for six months when I first moved there and then I dropped out. How, how did you make the decision to drop out? Because I looked at my life as three pillars or a triangle of attributes in my life. I saw school, I saw social life, and I saw work, which really was more just making videos, building businesses, that sort of thing. And for me personally, it was very obvious that school was the way lower of the two that were going to make an impact in my life. It was just really obvious early on. And I started the next semester at Santa Monica College and about two weeks in, I was like, no, this is not it for me. So how do you double down on the business stuff? I go to a lot of events. I start building new Twitter accounts and it was built off of OMG Facts going off into other niches, but then they all started growing on their own. And that was really me starting to get into, okay, I'm building businesses that I can uh, monetize in tons of different ways and brands that are not my face. Hmm. How did you actually monetize? Like what revenue were you bringing in? Back then, the main source of revenue really was these paid links, sponsorship links, usually app downloads or going to, you know, there's, you know, a quiz site that like gives different, You, it's like a fun quiz, but they have ads on the site. Just a lot of, yeah, direct advertising with websites and they'd pay a certain amount per click. How type much deals. are you making for a post? In the early days, because as everything grew, it got more and more saturated. But I think in the early days, there were a couple times where it was like a few grand per post. A few grand per post? What, how many posts were you doing? I wasn't doing them a ton because if you were to just post them all the time. And I think there was one point with some of the smaller accounts I had. There's different strategies. You post one here and there. It's a really high quality thing you're promoting. Um, and then there's other strategies where you take, you know, some of these companies yeah. that were the middlemen, they would have hundreds of links you can choose from and you could just schedule them every day, a couple times a day and you'd build up like a volume revenue as well. That's what a lot of accounts chose wow. to do. Yeah. So what did it feel like to make like this kind of money off of what seemed like an infinite money glitch? <laughs> it felt, I felt fortunate and special in the way of just having the ability to do that. I moved to LA really on just the gut feeling I knew it was going to work out. But I mean, I got, you know, a two bedroom with a roommate and I paid the rent and then I had $0 in my account. And this was at the beginning of the lawsuit where I wasn't making any money with OMG facts, but I, uh, you know, I took over the control of the account during that period and was able to start making a little money and pay for the rent and, and then build my other accounts and do all these things. 
Um, so lead me up into like 20, uh, I guess like the later. Yeah. The later, like maybe like 2019, how does the business develop? So the business develops, I continued all sorts of different, I really over those, that decade from 2011 to 2019 experimented through my company with tons of different business models. I would say in 2017, 18, 19 is when money really started to ramp up and the scale of the business started to ramp up. You know, the, uh, Dex media was now a seven figure company, seven figures. Yeah. Every wow. year. Um, a seven figure company. How old were you? Uh, mid twenties. Do you feel like happier and like more balanced with that money? No, I, in ways I was, there was definitely ways where I felt more satisfied because I felt I was growing as a business person, which is a true thing that I was learning a lot. I was growing as a regular person outside of business, but I, what I was doing was I was stressing myself a lot when things got bigger and I had more responsibility. It was more stressful. I remember going to the doctor and they was, I was healthy in every way, but then he was like, how's your stress? And I was like, like, I kind of looked at him funny. I'm like, I'm stressed all the time, every day, but this is normal. I think it kind of comes from my dad passing away and having responsibility as well Mm. that I kind of thrive with that. Tell me what is going on in your business around the time of COVID. Yeah. So ultimately with COVID, I definitely had a lot of expenses that I'd built up with scaling the business and the income stopped because everything in the world shut down, meaning advertising shut down, which is a major part of my business in a lot of realms. And I mean, I think income dropped to like 10% of what it was. And I got my you know, girlfriend at the time and we just moved uh, to Florida where her family was because we already were starting to think about leaving Los Angeles just in our own personal lives. But it was a really quick, you know what? Let's reset our life like this was not expected. But at the same time, it is our fault or my fault because I was not preparing properly for something like this to happen. And I think in my age group, I think it's pretty common because in 2008, I was 15. So I did not understand, you know, we had good economy through my whole adult business life. So it's just, hey, you know, things are good. Things are always going to be good. And not properly preparing, like back in 2011, starting to invest in a 401k instead being like, oh, well, I have the money. Like I'll have more, like I'm not going crazy on credit cards. I'll just spend it. But not realizing the opportunity cost of the future, I think is what set me up for that. Um, So we moved back and we actually lived uh, with her mom for a little bit, which actually was really awesome. I'd actually say one of the best decisions we made just personally, business-wise in all ways. Was that a hard decision? Because like you build up your image as like someone who's successful and as good as it might be to spend time with family like it's also could feel a little bit like a defeat or like a regression you know everyone thought I was going to be successful I was successful so young and now it's like I'm back to square one yep it was conflicting because I still, in the same way I said I was growing as a business person and growing as a person, I did have a lot of success, but then it was just, it was clouded by all this. And I had to come to terms with a lot of the reality that was set up in that way. It, it was conflicting. It was difficult to mind shift in the way of how I was thinking about going about things, but it was such a great, great lesson going back to the lesson of responsibility back when I was a teenager, but now even in a greater way and being able to do things the right way. So how did you start going towards the right way? 
So I fully dedicated my life to fixing my financial situation. Um, that moving to Florida was part one so that we could not live in these expensive apartments we were choosing to live in and be able to just focus on get rid of that stress that I was telling my doctor about. Get rid of that anxiety of, oh, I got to do this because I have this obligation to this thing or, you know, get rid of all that and be able to tap into my creativity that I know I have to be able to just go back and do the things the right way. And and things started going really well. I uh, made a lot of good decisions and was able to just with so much time and dedication mentally to developing, I just started doing things, not even looking for the desperation of I need to get the money and do this, just starting to tap into the things I know that could bring value to the world in some way. Um, and I started, I created a TikTok account kind of as a side project to the other stuff I was trying to do. And I tapped back into what I loved about OMG Facts and why I created it in the first place. Just really interesting information in a really easily consumable way for people. And I just started making videos as a fun test. And that was really a big beginning to come back to the roots of what I was really successful for before. What was the initial response from starting this TikTok account? So I created the TikTok account and the first couple of videos instantly started doing really well. And I ended up getting a million followers in the first 45 days. 45 days. That's insane. Did it feel insane? It was insane. I remember, I think I got my first video, got maybe 10,000 views. And it instantly to me, I was sitting probably at 300 followers. I told my fiance, this was June of 2021. I said, I'm going to have a million followers by Christmas. And she looked at me, not in complete shock because she knows, like, I just always say stuff like that. And I kind of sometimes will, because I just, I go out there and I'm like, I'm going to stress myself out and do this. Um, But she said, that's crazy. But um, I just saw, oh, this will work. Like I knew this was going to work. I just did not realize it was going to work that fast. I remember having a few thousand followers and thinking this is so fun and exciting and just cool. It reminds me of growing OMG facts in the past and the natural excitement and enjoyment I get out of it and just making the content and doing that. Um, and, but now I get to do it from a more creative sense. Cause I'm not just going out and posting these tweets and not really caring about it. I was actually, I've learned a lot. I was able to talk about things that were true and talk about things I was interested in and create it in my own format and put my personality behind it. What advice do you think you would give to yourself at like, or to other creators where maybe they're just starting out? What advice would you give? The advice I would really give to myself or any creator that wants to just get started or anybody wants to do anything, it really is a mix of two things. One, going out and trying everything. And then the other part of it is knowing when to shift and try and learn. Because there was, out of 16 years, I could tell you there were definitely a lot of years where I just was trying the same thing for a long period of time and never changing. And that aspect of it, I just thought, well, if I just keep going, it's going to work. But you're just hitting a brick wall doing something that's not relatable or going to work with other people. Um, You have to be able to experiment and shift. But putting in the reps, no matter how bad you think something's going to be, if you're going to do it, like we all fear like, oh, it's going to be bad that I'm not good enough to do the thing I truly want to do in my life. That goes away if you just get out there and start being bad. Because then you start seeing how to be better while paying attention to what other people are doing that are similar to what you want to do. That gives you shortcuts to know, oh, this is how you do it the right way. And then you start to do it off on your your own thing. My TikTok account is my own system, but it is 
inspired by other people who are doing stuff on TikTok or inspired by other YouTubers years before that. I've taken a lot from a lot of different people. I think anyone that's on the internet today can give you five different names that they're like, well, I watched them religiously and I learned from them and I loved what they did and I connected with it and I wanted to move forward with it in my own personal, you know, personality, authenticity, my creativity to the world and provide that value. But ultimately it is all about providing value and I think I started to lose that a little bit, even though I was growing the business and providing value in one way, um, being able to sustain it was important. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Berkel, Matt Fernandez, Renee B. Cannon, Sophia Donner, David Saidi, Ashley Jimenez, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong. With support from Sarah Hobson, Cherise Tan, Harushi Kanauchi, Kristen Hagelin, Aya Cortez, and Valencia Lu. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Aiden Ashworth, Nikki McCullough, Sylvie Wong, and Eric Menno. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Tiffany Dang, Yao Lil, and Dina Gabriel. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.